the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Just turn the teleprompter around. That's what the big guy should do tonight for a State of the Union address. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure. Actually, I am sure I can't make it through an entire speech with him squinting and, and, and trying to follow along on the prompter. Now, all presidents have had speech writers to write their State of the Union speeches, but there can't be too many people in the country who actually believe that Joe Biden has anything to do with anything he reads off the teleprompter. And someone suggested a while back that the best thing to do would be to just, you know, turn the prompter around and let the uh, American people read along, or for that matter, just have the big guy stay silent and let us read the speech. I've read I've read teleprompters for a long time. It's not that hard. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he probably didn't think he was going to be leading off with Ukraine, but you know he's going to start with that tonight. He has to, and eventually he has to get around to gas prices and all that oil that we are buying from Russia. I think it's 232 million barrels a day. Simple thing would be to just say, okay, I was wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have shut down the Keystone Pipeline and made it tougher for oil companies to drill on public land, and maybe I should have not said anything nasty about fracking. And maybe you could say that being energy independent was a pretty good idea, and maybe we ought to, you know, go back to that. But you know he's not going to say that. He's going to whine about uh, <clears throat> climate change and try to sell everybody on windmills and solar panels, which probably won't work 50 years from now, but definitely isn't going to work in the next few weeks while Russia is, you know, bombing Ukraine. And, of course, the price of gas here in America is going to continue to go up. And when we come back after this break, we'll talk to James Taylor. He's the president of the Heartland Institute We're going to get him to tell us what Joe Biden should actually be saying tonight about how to fix the energy situation and maybe get your uh, gas prices or our prices at the pump to go down. And in our second half hour, you've heard of charter schools and you heard of homeschooling, I'm sure. But what's a micro school? It's probably better than your local public school. We'll talk to an expert about that. Stick around. have the same energy they used to? Do they have problems with itching, scratching, a dull coat, or goopy ears? Then your pets need Dinovite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. For over 20 years, pet owners have trusted Dinovite to supplement their pet's diet. We started Dinovite and in our first box, we noticed a difference. Dinovite is an all-natural daily supplement made from whole foods that helps support your pet's immune system, digestion, skin, and coat. Within three weeks, he's not scratching and itching, and he's an all-around happier dog. Today's commercial pet food are processed at high temperatures, which bakes out all the essential goodness. These processed foods can lack the essential vitamins, enzymes, and probiotics that contribute to overall good health. Adding a scoop of Dynavite to your pet's food bowl is the answer. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. I have two cats and two dogs. All four of them are on the Dynavite. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life, and he created the Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for you. This is John Steigerwald. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza, and his latest incredible deal is the sale of the year. For a limited time, you're going to receive 60% off the Giza Dream Sheets. That comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You'll receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time with any purchase, you'll receive Mike's soft cover book free when you use promo code STAG. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code STAG. Along with this offer, you'll also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. Call one 800 716 
888-789-8087. Use the promo code STAG or visit MyPillow.com and use the promo code STAG. Dr. Gorka here, and I want to talk to you for a minute about 100% drug-free Relief Factor. I've been taking Relief Factor for years now to help me deal with pain in my body. My wife takes it as well. The reason we tell everyone uh, we know about it is simple. We found it really works to help our bodies fight off the inflammation that causes aches and pains. Whether it's the pain of injuries you've sustained or just the natural pains from the mileage over the years, Relief Factor can help. I've never looked back. Almost 70% of the more than half a million people who have tried Relief Factor end up ordering more. That's because it works for them the way it works for me. Isn't it time for you to get out of pain? Your first step to becoming pain-free should be to order the three-week quick start for the discounted price of only $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF to find out more about this offer. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. Feel the difference. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 3388 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 3388. Enjoy. This is the John Stackerwalt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The Answer. Well, the big guy's uh, going to the podium tonight with an approval rating that's right up there with halitosis. Uh, and we all know that State of the Union addresses are usually nothing but a laundry list of all the wonderful things the president has done in the past year. Of course, that would make for a really short speech tonight, but don't count on that. So what's he going to say when he gets to the gas prices and what's he going to do to lower them? That should be interesting. James Taylor is president of the Heartland Institute, and he joins us now. James, good to have you on again. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, John. So uh, I wanted to have you on. I thought of you guys because I wanted to ask you, as I said, Joe's going to be, uh, I said in my opening of the show uh, that Joe's going to be reading from the teleprompter tonight, and uh, they all do, but uh, if you were writing his speech, I wanted to have, to have you on to ask you what Joe should say tonight about what he's going to do about gas prices if he really wanted to lower them. Yeah, well, he should apologize, but I don't require an apology. He should, at the very least, change course. We built up Putin's war chest by the self-inflicted wound of the Biden administration, taking American oil and natural gas production offline, sending other nations to Russia. When our energy is not in the global market, when there's less available, prices go up. It's a, it's a, it's a one-two punch. Prices have gone up, and Putin's the one now selling more and more of it. Back 10, 15 years ago, Putin didn't engage in such blatant military adventurism because he couldn't afford to do so. But America's policies, Joe Biden's policies, have enriched Putin, have built up his war chest at the same time that we're slamming American living standards. In a time when energy prices are going up, the American economy should benefit from it the way Russian's economy benefit from, benefits from it, the way Saudi Arabia's economy benefits, the way Venezuela's economy benefits, because we have more oil and natural gas than any other nation in the world. But instead, we're resorting to begging Putin and begging Saudi Arabia to increase production. And John Kerry says, as Russia's rolling tanks into Ukraine, please don't take your eye off the ball of working with us on climate change. This is preposterous. This is something that needs to change immediately. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because there's been a long-standing uh, debate about gr- the Green New Deal and whatever it was called before that. And there have been people you know, pushing for uh, a reduction in fossil fuels for a long time, and you can have a nice debate about that. But this is the first time, at least that I'm aware of, that it's, it's gotten to the point that uh, where we're dealing with what you just described, which is, you know, you can talk about um, – uh, 
dealing with reducing the production and then hoping that the, the climate uh, change is, is, um, is affected by it. And that's a long-term thing. But this is something that might not be happening. What, what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine might not be happening if not for what Biden did not, a little over a year ago. It's, it's like an immediate effect of this philosophy that we've never seen before. Am I right about that? Oh, absolutely. We fattened his war chest. Wars cost money to wage. And we've given him plenty of money in the past year by chasing our customers into his arms. And by the way, not only that, if we had been delivering natural gas to Europe the way Donald Trump wanted to and his agreement with the polls to import natural gas, but but now we have instead Joe Biden encouraging Germany to get natural gas from Russia, refusing to send oil and natural gas overseas. If Germany were not so dependent on Russia for its energy, for its economy, uh, a lifeblood of energy, they would likely have been sending military equipment into Ukraine much sooner than they did. Remember, we paused even after the invasion started. Germany refused to do anything other than provide helmets. Uh, Ukraine could be offering a better resistance right now had we not pushed Germany and others into complete energy dependence on Russia. Now, we can't change the past, but we certainly can change the future, and we can fix it for the future. And rather than lecturing us now, like the Biden administration did this week, well, this just shows that the world needs more solar power and wind power. Look, the world doesn't operate on that now. If it wanted to, which would be foolish economically, if it wanted to, it would take many, many years to do so. You don't hamstring our economy and the global economy by still refusing to replace Russian oil and natural gas right now in the name of global warming. Do you expect him to double down on solar panels and windmills tonight? Absolutely. He already has this week. Jen Psaki told us that, well, this just shows that we need more green energy. No, it doesn't. It shows that we shouldn't be living this pipe dream of unicorns and pixie dust where the United States is inflicting self-inflicted wounds on ourselves and pushing the rest of the world because the rest of the world wants affordable, abundant energy, affordable energy. And we can say all we want about global warming, but they're going to buy oil, coal, and natural gas. It's better if they buy it from us. It's going to be much more problematic if they're dependent on Russia, which they are right now, and which they will be for the next at least decade or two, regardless of what the Biden administration says and lectures us about global warming. Uh, Biden's defenders uh, and the people who are pushing the, the Green New Deal, uh, I think I've hear, I heard it said from them that shutting down the Keystone Pipeline had nothing to do with where gas prices are now. Uh, is that something that um, are, are you buying that? Is that is that something that you buy, or, or is it is shutting it down already is already a factor um, in what's happening here a year later? Well, there are many factors. The Keystone Pipeline is one. Biden's halt on new oil and gas leases on federal lands is another one. By the way, almost all the oil and gas produced in these uh, in well in drilling operations occurs in the first year to year and a half of operation. So his ban right now is going to have very quick impacts on the American economy. It's the Biden administration encouraging banks not to give loans to conventional energy production. All of these things combined are having a devastating hammer blow on our economy. The Keystone Pipeline by itself would provide more oil to the United States than we import from Russia. By the way, we import a lot of oil from Russia. We still do. Keystone could have replaced that. And rather than sending money to Russia at the price of $100 a barrel for oil, we could be giving it to the Canadians. Or better yet, if we weren't hamstringing our own production, we could be producing that ourselves and not be dependent on anyone. Under Donald Trump, we finally reached the point of energy self-sufficiency. And now, in less than a year, well, just about a year, Joe Biden has us begging Putin and Saudi Arabia and others to ramp up oil production. This is silly. Why don't we produce it ourselves? We're buying 232 million barrels of oil per day is the number I saw from Russia. So what what might that number be if Donald Trump's policies had stayed in place? Would it be zero? It would be zero right now with this war going on. Sometimes for the efficiency of economic transactions, even if we're producing more than we use, it might make sense, for example, for some places in the Northeast to import it, uh, especially if you have difficulty transporting it from Western states, et cetera. But in a circumstance like this, we could easily say, all right, you get no more of our money. We're buying no more of your oil. It'll be a little more difficult for us to work it around the country, but we'll still do it.
So absolutely. And also by Joe Biden putting a halt on new oil and natural gas production in, in the United States on federal lands, we produce on federal lands prior to Joe Biden shutting it off. We produce more oil and natural gas again than we import from Russia. So we could replace our Russian imports that way as well. Now we're going to be doubly dependent on Russia and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. And, and there's also been a, a one-year pause in whatever direction we were going uh, in under um, Donald Trump. And so uh, we've lost a year's worth of production and just because Donald Trump left and Joe Biden came in. So how do you make that up? Yeah, you make it up by changing course, which Joe Biden doesn't seem he wants to do. And by the way, when they arrogantly lecture the rest of the world that it's their fault that they're dependent on Russian oil and natural gas because they should have gone green, well, the alternative would have been paying a lot more money to China because we cannot have wind turbines or solar panels without substantial amounts of rare earth elements that are provided almost entirely or processed almost entirely by China. So we'd be trading one uh, authoritarian, hostile government for another. Why are we making ourselves and the rest of the world dependent on Russia and China for energy, which we cannot do without, when we can produce this ourselves? We are the world's energy superpower if we simply decide to be so, because we have more resources than anyone else. But Joe Biden tells us, well, no, 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 no. Your, your real solution should be become dependent on China. So how much does the Russian government uh count on oil and natural gas how much of a part of their economy is it oh this is amazing that the revenue that they bring in is between 35 and 40 percent of their entire budget think about that 35 to 40 percent and we're driving more nations to them to build that up even higher if we could replace russian oil exports which we can we have those energy resources. We can produce it more efficiently. We can produce it at a lower price, but we're, being, we're making these political decisions not to. We could absolutely devastate their economy. And the fact of the matter is nations have powerful militaries, not because they have a large land mass, not uh, because they have a lot of people. It's based upon what your economy is because it costs money to research, to build, to sustain weapons, and the military. If we were to replace Russia's energy exports, which is 35 to 40 percent of their federal budget, then we would deal a devastating blow. We wouldn't have to worry about troops on the ground. They wouldn't be able to send troops in in the first place. Well, it sounds like uh, Russia depends on oil. Uh, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, and 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 uh, and, the, and also uh, natural gas as much as some of the Middle Eastern countries do. Absolutely. Uh, Russia could well be uh, a member of OPEC. And if it were a member of OPEC, it would be right up there with Saudi Arabia as far as influence. When we have had energy prices decline, when we had uh, oil prices decline in the 1980s and the 1990s, when we had energy prices decline as a result of the fracking revolution, when we had uh, oil prices decline under Donald Trump, Russia did not have the capacity to wage war to the extent that it is right now. Russia had limited resources, and they had to, of course, keep their people fed to a certain degree, keep them happy to a certain degree. They didn't have the excess money to spend on military adventurism. If we're talking about sanctions, the best, most effective and immediate sanction we could do right now is take the shackles off our own <coughs> domestic energy economy. We'd benefit our own economy, and we'd punish Russia, and we wouldn't have to do anything that's provocative militarily in the process. So if he and the Democrats were, were to suddenly, you know, just give up on the whole green energy thing, how long would it take to reverse the damage of the past year and, and have it get to the point where um, we could provide Germany with what they're, and other countries with what they're getting from Russia? It wouldn't take long at all. Uh, it, as I mentioned before, the majority of oil produced from wells is produced in the first year that these wells are in operation. Uh, American uh, oil and natural gas producers through the fracking revolution uh, a decade ago, they learned how to quickly and place wells, drill wells and produce energy when they find it. Uh, also sending a signal that we're not going to discourage banks from financing conventional energy. We, we could very quickly, in less than a year, we can have a seismic, make a seismic difference in energy markets 
in the American economy and on nations' dependence that they don't want to have, but we force them to, dependence on Russia. Well, I don't know what you're paying uh, for gas where you live, but it's up to three seventy a gallon here for regular. Um, and what how what would it how long would it take to get that number to go down if things were to be reversed? Well, let's let's take the the Russian war with Ukraine out of the occasion because that'll have yeah. quite quite a few factors. But if if that had not happened, you you would see differences in gas prices within months within months. Uh, and you'd see sizable differences probably between six months and a year. But we'd start seeing that decline. Just just the markets knowing that more is on the way would make a difference right away. And um, uh, you you had a piece that, uh, up at, I, I think it was on your website, but I saw it somewhere, that um, the average American is it's costing the average American $1,000 in energy costs because of Joe Biden's policies. Right. So during the past year, and this is largely due to Biden's policies, electricity prices are up 8%. Industrial electricity prices up 15%. Home heating oil up 43%. Oil prices up 60%. Natural gas prices up 61%. Gasoline up a dollar a gallon. Many of those we pay for directly, but we're also paying indirectly when those higher costs are baked into every good and service in the economy. So what you're looking at is the average American household spent over $1,000 above and beyond what we would have been spending if we had not had these Biden policies in place. So if you like the fact, if you like sending more than $1,000 a year into this green dream or whatever, according to Nancy Pelosi, as she described it, if you think it's worth $1,000 a year for the green dream, then you should be happy. But if not, boy, it'd be great to have that money back in, in, in our pocketbooks. You know, the, the people who are pushing the Green New Deal and whatever you want to call it uh, are very loud and they get a lot of coverage from the media. But the polls that I've seen show that issue to be way, way down on the list of things that people are concerned about. Um, and, and you wonder how it is that the Democrats think that that's a successful uh, policy to have and that, that, and that they continue to sell it. Even the way things are going now with uh, gas prices going up and Ukraine being invaded. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's not just Democrats. Fortunately, there are uh, some Republican politicians who chase this fool's gold, who think that, well, I can show that I'm a compassionate conservative by wanting to fight climate change. But the fact of the matter is, poll after poll after poll, when giving voters a choice, what are the issues that are most important to you? Fighting global warming comes at last or near last in every single poll. And for the few that think it's very high priority, those are going to vote Democrat anyway. Now, some Democrats are a lost cause. Not all of them are. But what really gets my craw is when I see Republicans think that it's a wise election strategy to basically turn off your base, turn your back on the base, alienate your base, and then think you're going to pull over some liberal Democrats to vote for you because you mouth the words about global warming. And it's not going to happen. They aren't. They aren't going to vote for you because even they are included in those polls. Correct? That that show that right. as much as they may uh, talk about it, when it comes down to it, that's not the thing that's going to going to determine who they vote for. Absolutely. And polls in the American people show that most Americans will not even pay. They don't think it's worth paying ten dollars a month to fight global warming. They realize, hey, look, let's keep an eye on it, but it's not that we're going to punish ourselves. Uh, as strongly as the Green New Deal and other programs uh, would do for something that right now is really we don't see all these catastrophes uh, that are being predicted. Now, we're already paying much more than $10 a month for all of the programs and restrictions and requirements to purchase wind and solar power. So we're already paying more than most Americans want to pay. Any politician who thinks that the path to electoral success and political success is to ramp up more and more of these incredibly expensive and restrictive programs, doesn't realize what the mood of the American people is. I have less than a minute to go, um, uh, James, and I just wonder real quick, uh, get back to the Russia thing. How long would it be before Russia would feel the effects of U.S. Uh, drastically increasing oil and natural gas exports? Immediately, because it would send a signal to the markets even before it comes online. It would send a signal to the markets that they're on the way, and the price of oil and natural gas would decline significantly, and there goes the money from their war chest. Well, it sounds like a good idea to me. It'll be interesting to see what the big guy says about it tonight. Thanks for coming on, James. I appreciate it. 
Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. Okay, James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute. We'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm John Scott. President Biden is getting low marks from the American people as he prepares for his State of the Union address. When the president stands before Congress and the country tonight, he won't have the support of most Americans. In several polls, including one from the Washington Post and ABC News, Mr. Biden is underwater. 37% approve of his job performance, 55% disapprove. He especially gets low numbers for his handling of the economy. What else correspondent Greg Cluxton? The address at 9 p.m. Eastern. Russian forces have stepped up their attacks on populated urban areas, bombarding the central square in Ukraine's second largest city and Kiev's main TV tower. Ukraine's president accusing Moscow of a blatant campaign of terror on day six of the invasion. This is SRN News. Hi, I'm cute kid number one. And I'm cute kid number two. And we have been forced, you mean hired, we have been hired to tell you what direct lender FOMO is. So let's say you buy a new home and maybe you use one of those big mortgage monsters or someone your realtor or friend recommends. And then a few months later, you hear us being forced, hired, hired, to tell you about our mortgage team's direct lender advantage. And then you feel like you missed out because you probably did miss out. And that is direct lender FOMO. It's Ryan, and our mortgage team is an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman. This often allows us to get you a better rate on that new home mortgage, saving you monthly and lifelong money. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Middle Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to Animalist Consumer Access. Dollar Corporate Animalist Number 1335. Rack Animalist Number 65233. Equal Housing Lender. I license in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Utah. AM 1250, The Answer. Larry Elder. I was at CPAC over the weekend in Orlando, Florida, and I was interviewed by a reporter from BuzzFeed. They're the ones that published the so-called Steele dossier. How do you feel, she said, about Donald Trump being the standard bearer for your party in 2024? I said, I'm fine with it. She said, I got the impression that you might run for president yourself. I said, au contraire. If Donald Trump wants it, he has it. But give him my phone number. Tell him if he needs a running mate, call me. The Larry Elder Show, weeknights at 7 on AM 12. 50. The answer. If you're with Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, you're paying too much for your wireless service. Because Pure Talk gives you the exact same 5G coverage as one of those big carriers on the exact same network, but saves the average family over $800 a year. And Pure Talk doesn't lock you into an overpriced unlimited data contract. Why pay for data you don't need? Instead, get unlimited talk, text, and 6 gigs of data for just $30 a month. And switching is so easy. You can keep your phone and keep your number. Or get huge discounts on the latest iPhones and Androids. So what are you waiting for? Start saving today. Go to puretalk.com, type in your address to find the coverage at your home, then enter promo code HALFOFF, and you'll save an additional 50% off your first month. That's puretalk.com, promo code HALFOFF. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. You're not who you were 25 years ago. Your life's more complex. People change, families change, and the law changes. This is Jay Hagerman of Abernathy and Hagerman, and a proper estate plan should keep up with those changes. That's why Abernathy and Hagerman presents free ongoing estate planning workshops with attorney Dan Reimer, someone who's really good at making complex concepts sound so simple, so you can protect what's yours and to ensure that your will is done. The next one's happening soon. For details and to attend, visit a-h.law. AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. WPGP Pittsburgh. W223CS Pittsburgh. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on the answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in, iHeart, or Odyssey. Stuck in traffic? We've got the answer. It's been a busy afternoon and lots of volume still out there. Let's look at the Parkway West, first of all, inbound. That's slow from Green Tree Road to the Fort Pitt Tunnel with delays with volume on the Parkway East or inbound trip. Volume delays Forest Hills to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel and 2nd Avenue to the Fort Pitt Bridge. Outbound stacking up Bates Street up to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. Still heavy on outbound 51 Sawmill Run between Midwood Avenue and Library Road. That's a look at traffic. I'm Jenny Robinson. AM 1250, the answer. Weather. 
Tonight we'll see an evening shower in places, otherwise considerable cloudiness. We'll reach a low of 33, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Tomorrow's high 51. Considerable clouds tomorrow night, couple of showers of rain or snow and a low of 30. For Thursday, it'll be colder with clouds breaking for some sunshine. We'll reach a high Thursday of 34. Friday, cloudy, not as cold with a high of 41. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm Drew Shannon. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. Well, a lot of parents found out a lot of things about public schools that they didn't like during COVID hysteria. Lots of them are looking for alternatives. One that you may be hearing a lot about uh, soon is micro schools. Andy Smerick is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's one of their experts on education, and he's here to tell you about it. Andy, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. So what is a micro school? It's not a real little school building, I'm guessing. Well, actually, the term pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Uh, most often we think of schools, especially traditional public schools, you know, an elementary school might have 500 kids, a high school might be 1,000 or more. A micro school is generally a private school that literally has a handful of kids. We, it might be three or four or five, it could be as many as 10, but seldom does it get much bigger than that, which leads to a whole host of other questions related to how big the facility needs to be, how many teachers you need to have, but also good things like the uh, really interpersonal relationships that can develop because it's a, such a small learning environment. So you could have a school, uh, a, 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 a something called a school with five kids, and it's officially a school. Right. Well, so you're already hitting on a really important point, which is if we use air quotes around officially, what does this actually mean? So there's this concept of homeschooling that goes back hundreds of years where it's just a family decides to school their kids at their own house. But that has grown over the years to co-ops where groups of families get together to do it. And they might not register as a private school. It's just families getting together to educate their kids. So in some cases, these schools will go to the government and get permission and get some kind of certificate to actually operate as a private school. Other times, it's more uh, organic effort. Three, four families get together and say, let's divvy up the responsibility of educating our kids collectively. And on Monday and Tuesday, we'll be at John's house. On Wednesday and Thursday, we'll go to the uh, rec center. On Friday, we'll spend some time in museums. It can be that organic and dynamic. Yeah, uh, I uh, uh, right down the road here in West Virginia, they have officially um, signed on to school choice where kids' uh, parents are given, I think it's like about $4,900 per child that they can use however, wherever they want. And uh, I had the guy on who was very instrumental in getting that done down there in West Virginia. And one of the things that, uh, that I discuss with him, and it sounds like a, 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 a what would be a micro school, is that uh, if you have school choice and, and kids are given the money uh, to take with them where they want, you can get 10, you can get five or six or seven or 10 families to each throw in the five or six thousand dollars that the, that the, uh, the government is giving you, and you could hire your own personal teacher to teach the kids of 10 families. Uh, and, got this exactly and, that's, right. and that's the micro school. I guess that's the birth of the micro school, right? Right. So uh, one element here that's interesting if people are uh, focused on public policy, especially at the state level, is there used to be these things called scholarships or vouchers where the state would find some low-income families and say, we'll give you $5,000 a year if you want to use that money at a private school. Well, this next generation of school choice programs that West Virginia has and a handful of other states, they're called the education savings accounts, where rather than saying, the government saying, we'll pay your students tuition at a private school, the government says, here's a certain amount of money. You can use that money as you see fit for education services and products. And that kind of flexibility then means you don't just have to give it to St. Joe's or Blessed Sacrament Catholic School or some other kind of fancy private elite school, you can use that money to maybe pay rent for a micro school or buy textbooks 
or pay for a um, membership at a museum or a set of museums. So you can see families working together to cobble together with this little bit of state money, different kinds of educational experiences, which opens up all types of options for what schooling can look like. And what uh, a family could get, families could get together uh, and take the money that the state is giving them, and couldn't they go to a teacher who's working at maybe a, a private school? Catholic school teachers don't make a lot of money. Uh, or maybe go to a teacher who's teaching in a public school and say, hey, uh, you're making $65,000 a year. How'd you make, like to make $75,000 uh, to come and teach 10 kids? You'll have 10 kids in your class. Uh-huh. Absolutely, and it goes even a step beyond that. You could pull the money to buy one teacher a a full-time basis and maybe even pay benefits. Or you could decide, let's uh, give a little bit of money to three different teachers who will will work for us part-time, and then we'll spend the rest of the money on tutors who come in, or maybe once a week an expert speaker who really knows about photosynthesis or uh, knows about Mars if you're doing a a section on astronomy. Like, so there are all these different options that we used to think about paying teachers as one teacher teaching all day. These kinds of options uh, allow people to decide that there are lots of different ways that you can use different grown-ups to teach kids in different ways. But what we're talking about here, Andy, is uh, a form of school choice. Uh, teachers' unions and Democrats don't like school choice. So what has to happen for micro-schools to become a common thing? Well, the conversation that you and I would be having had the pandemic never occurred would probably be quite different than if, uh, given that it did and we're now two plus years into it. So, yes, generally school choice programs can rock the establishment. They would prefer things to be as they are and kids just be assigned to their traditional neighborhood schools. And so that's why we've seen fights over charter schools and vouchers and so on. But because of the disruptions of covid more and more families, and we're talking not just 10, 15, 20% of families. There are a lot of surveys now that are showing 60, 70, 80% of families are receptive to the idea of school choice along the lines of these ESAs. So that's why so many states over the past year have passed these kinds of programs. Uh, it's whether or not state legislatures want to make this money available because families are quite interested in it, and then what kinds of options can they develop? The appetite for this among policymakers and among families is so much higher than it was when every, so many people were just comfortable with their traditional schooling. But after two years of disruptions, we had so many surveys from so many different organizations showed not only did families want their kids to get a better education because they didn't like online schooling or they didn't like school closures or masks, but families were saying, we want something different. Often they were saying, we want to be able to spend more time with our kids. Uh, the idea of just sending their kids away for six hours a day wasn't necessarily first in their mind. So the ability to homeschool, micro-school, do this online school, a hybrid approach is really appealing. And uh, this year, this past 12 months, 18 months, we've seen more school choice legislation than at any time since the founding of the movement in 1990, 1991. Um, and you would think that the most interest in this should be from places like uh, Baltimore City Schools, where I don't have it in front of me here, but I think it was like 80% of the kids are reading at the fifth grade level at the high, in the high school. Um, and... You, you, that is the place that really needs something like this. But is it realistic to expect those kids to be able to escape without, uh, with all the political ramifications involved in school choice and teachers' unions and everything? Well, a couple things are important there. One is, yes, there are lots of areas in America where uh, kids are assigned, especially low-income kids, are assigned to schools that just aren't working for them. And so they have need, and this goes back, we have polling data on this more than 30 years. But also, because of the pandemic, more and more data is coming out showing that suburban kids and exurban kids and rural kids have, kids have been badly affected by the, uh, the pandemic. And so learning loss has been seen across the board. So more and more families need access to things. So uh, yes, in urban areas, we're going to see more of this, but also we're going to see it in suburban areas because more families want more of it. And who's organizing these micro schools? Is it groups of parents getting together? Is it a really a um, grassroots kind of a thing? Ultimate grassroots? 
Yeah, all of the above. Sometimes it's groups of parents. Sometimes it's groups of educators. There are these related programs that are often called pods and hubs, where maybe a city government will make one of its buildings available for it, or a group of uh, families will get together with the teacher on a part-time basis after school, so it's not it's so it's supplementing with their traditional school as opposed to um, it's complementary as opposed to substituting for it, and so it can be anything from five families and one parent taking the lead to ten families sharing the load. It can be a city government, it can be local nonprofits, it can be faith-based organizations. One reason I find this so exciting is that we've seen more social entrepreneurialism. We've seen more energy from what we call the social sector, nonprofits, community-based groups, trying to solve the COVID problem over the past two years. Everyone was worried, all oh, these kids aren't going to get an education. Well, American citizens and families and educators and nonprofits uh, stood up and said, well, we can help solve this problem. So there can be a public micro-school then, but that it would require, the obviously, the the state or local uh, school board or whatever it would be, the governing body, to encourage it, allow it? Yeah, these schools can exist as part of the homeschool community. They can exist as part of the charter school community. They can even be embedded within a traditional public school if you have a school board and a superintendent and a principal and a set of teachers who are interested. They could decide by passing a resolution and giving a little bit of money to maybe have five kids in a grade learn in a small hub every day of the week, a couple days a week, as long as principals and school board members uh, are interested in this, administrators are going to support it. Now, that becomes more difficult because of all of the union and civil service rules, so we're seeing more of this in the private school sector, but there are a couple states that have passed laws that are encouraging states and districts to do more of this micro-school activity as opposed to just giving it up to the nonprofit and private sector. We're talking to Andy Schmerich. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, uh, and he's uh, one of their experts on education, talking about micro-schools. So uh, how much of uh, micro-schooling is in person, and how much of it is online? Another great question. It depends. I'm sorry to give you such an equivocal answer. There are some families who decided that they wanted to micro-school because they didn't like how much online learning was happening. They didn't like how much time their kids were spending in front of screens, especially during the pandemic. So they committed that they were going to do essentially 100% full-time uh, adults and kids in real life engaging with one another, maybe going on field trips and so forth. There are others who are trying to use technology, including what we call hybrid homeschooling, where you homeschool part of the time, but then maybe you go to a different location and get some of your education through online courses, and there are some where most of the content is coming online. This requires us to think differently, because when I was growing up, you pretty much had brick-and-mortar schools, whether they were public or private, and you got all of your education in one place, and that was the full story. But because there are these online options and homeschooling options and these pods and hubs and micro-schools, I don't want to call it a smorgasbord quite yet, but there is this ability, especially if you have public money in these ESAs, to say, we're going to get a little bit of tutoring. We're going to get a little bit of online learning. We're going to use some of this money to pay a parent to teach three days a week. And families can just get together and decide what mix is right. So it really depends on the appetites of the families and teachers who are involved. Well, Andy, what you're talking about here seems to make way too much sense. So I have very little confidence in it. In a, being, you know, spreading like wildfire, at least. What's the pushback on this, the level of the pushback you're going to get on, not you personally, but people who want to do this, how much pushback are they going to get, not just from teachers' unions, but from Democrats? I was going to say public officials, but it's going to be mostly Democrats. Well, I might blow your mind on this to uh, tell you that the most likely, what we're seeing to be the most likely inhibition to this growing is going to be inertia or just like the gravitational pull of the way things were. So micro-schooling was a phenomenon that was relatively small, tens of thousands or a couple hundred thousand kids prior to the pandemic. But then the pandemic hit and millions of families decided they just needed something different and no one was solving the problem for them, so they had to solve it themselves. 
so now that the pandemic is essentially over and schools have not only opened up, most of them are getting rid of masks and things are getting back to normal, we're seeing in at least the initial survey data that more and more families are saying, well, micro-schooling was a pretty good idea when we needed it, but let's go back to what is comfortable and familiar to us. We don't have the full data on this, so we don't know what it's going to look like, but Often schools admitted that they couldn't solve the pandemic themselves, so they didn't put up too much of a fuss about a lot of families doing this. Whether or not families love it and want to stick with it and have the money to do it is a question that we're going to be looking at over the next year or two. Uh, but, of course, there will be you know, political pushback to the idea of ESAs or vouchers supporting this kind of thing. But if families like this after having done it for a year or two, we might see this grow to more than hundreds of thousands of kids, maybe a couple million kids. Homeschooling was already maybe three, four million students nationwide prior to the pandemic. Maybe a year from now, you and I are talking and it has leveled off at five million, six million, seven million, and maybe a lot of that will be micro schools. Okay, I've got to finishing up here with uh, Andy Schmerich of the uh, Manhattan Institute and micro schools. Um, so what kind of an undertaking is it if I uh, decide if that, that my kid is going to a school that I think stinks, um, how do, where, do, where does somebody begin to, to say, okay, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm going to start a micro school? I mean, how hard of an undertaking is that? Well, it's, as I like to say, it's not nothing, um, but it's also not going to necessarily totally upend your life. Now, there are a number of organizations, mostly nonprofits, that have started uh, micro-school networks. A couple of them are famous, Wildflower or Prenda, and they have literally hundreds of micro-schools that they support in states or across the entire nation. So you could plug into one of those, and they have resources to help you. Or if you know an educator who knows something about pedagogy and resources and curriculum, working with someone like that uh, can be helpful. And if you do this in the private school sector as opposed to trying to a charter school or within the system, you have a lot of degrees of freedom from regulation and rules and laws and statutes. Obviously, you're going to have to follow health and safety and non-discrimination rules. But uh, as long as you get a number of kids in their families and you do in the private sector, if you can gather up the right number of kids and the right number of educators and figure out the resources you want to use, and online there are so many different standards and curriculum and reading resources and activities, you could put something together and be up and running quite quite quickly. Now, the bigger question for those of us who care not just about different but high quality, we want to make sure that these micro schools aren't just different, but they're educating all kids and doing it quite well. Uh, and so we're going to have to study more of that, too. But unlike if you and I decided we were going to start a 500-person charter school, we would have to go through a huge application process and get approved by the state and get a facility. And that might take us 18 months to 24 months to just get up and running. This, this kind of micro school, if you do it in the private school sector, could be a fraction of a fraction of that amount of time and money because it's so small and so nimble. Hey, Andy, I'm out of time. I really appreciate it. I hope this thing works, and maybe we'll talk uh, later to see how much progress it's making. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's Andy Schmerich, and you can find him at Manhattan Institute, uh, and uh, we'll be right back. When it's time to replace your roof, siding, gutters, and downspouts, entry doors, and, of course, windows, you can count on Windows R Us, the area's premier exterior replacement company. This is John Steigerwald. With over 50 years' experience in the home remodeling industry, Windows R Us offers repair and replacement for all your exterior home projects. Why pay double with some other companies? Windows R Us will always give you the best price on the best in-class products, backed by the best warranties in the industry, all with zero sales pressure. And speaking of zero... Right now, get zero interest financing for 12 months and no processing fee with prices set to increase on all exterior products. Lock in your quote today. Schedule a free estimate at windowsrustpittsburgh.com. Find them at the Pittsburgh Home Show beginning March 4th. You've tried the rest, now try the best. windowsrustpittsburgh.com. Windows are us. You've tried the rest, now try the best. 
There's one box that you'd run back into your burning house to grab. It's the box filled with your videotapes, film reels, and photos. Those sentimental, meaningful, irreplaceable moments. Hi, I'm Nick Mako. And I'm Adam Baselogger. We started Legacy Box over a decade ago so that we could help families save their memories from being destroyed by floods or fires. And it's not just natural disasters, Adam. Every day, videotapes and photos are slowly fading away, decaying, neglected in closets and attics. Digitizing your old media stops fading, and preserving those recordings means they are safe forever. It's like magic converting your shoebox of memories into digital files ready to watch and share. It's the only way to ensure your legacy is safe for generations. That's why over a million families have already trusted Legacy Box. Legacy Box is simple and easy, it works, and is safe. We'd love to preserve your family's collection. Don't wait. The risk is too great. Visit LegacyBox.com slash LBox to save 40%. That's LegacyBox.com slash LBox to get started and save. LegacyBox.com slash LBox. This is the John Stacker Walt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. Well, I have some very sad news for you uh, right now as you're driving home, possibly. This would be something that could merely ruin your dinner, uh, if nothing else. It looks like Major League Baseball's opening day has been canceled. Oh, no. The Pirates, they can't open a season and stink for another year, which they've done for 34 of the last 40 years. Yeah, the uh, the deadline was today at 5 o'clock, and it came and went. The players were supposed well, it, the, the uh, commissioner, Manfred, he said that if there was not an agreement by 5 o'clock today, originally it was yesterday and they extended it, if it was not by 5 o'clock uh, today, uh, he would have to start canceling games. So he's he says now that uh, as a result of no deal being made today, he has canceled the first two series of the baseball season. First of all, they have opening day now on March 31st, okay? Which, you know, the temperature's about, it could be 27 degrees, and they're too stupid to open all the, all the uh, seasons, all the games in warm weather cities. You have like, you'll have like the Atlanta Braves play, opening the season in New York, where it's 40 degrees, and it's meanwhile it's 65 in Atlanta. Uh, that, so it, it, it couldn't happen to a more deserving group, this, the Major League Baseball. When I was still working in TV, I, I started calling them the idiots who run baseball about 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. I even had a graphic made up that I put behind me when I was talking about it on the screen, the IWRB. So the IWRB have, has, struck again. The idiots who run baseball. And all the talk about this and why there's a problem, I didn't see any mention of salary cap. Until they mention that, no need to pay attention. Bye. The John Steigerwald Show is a production of the Answer Pittsburgh and Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.